Hello everybody and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Yeah. <laughs> this is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic. Uh, for the purposes of this particular podcast, you can call me Rockmeister McCool. No pressure. And uh, yeah, you, on you this... Can, you can. You're, you you're can. permitted. Just saying no pressure. You can mm. do whatever you want. What's your oyster? Uh, and uh, if you want to email us, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And uh, we might read your email on an episode of We've Got Mail, like we're about to do right now. Uh, we've invited all of our listeners to email us, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And uh, we don't have time for all of our letters, so we try to get to them as quickly as possible mm-hmm. and give you as much time as we can. Mm-hmm. So without further delay, Whitney... Let's read some letters. All right, here is a letter from Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Uh, greeting Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Hey, that's us. Uh, I had fallen very behind on your mountains of podcasts during the pandemic, but have slowly been catching up recently uh, when I got to start commuting to work again. I'm currently in a run of December letters episode where you guys have discussed movies to introduce young children to, as well as various syllabi for college film classes and agonized over how difficult it is to encompass all of film history and world cinema into just a few screenings. I come to you now with a similar question Hmm. Uh, in between these extremes. And even though I know you're going to tell me to never apologize, I must apologize in advance for how long-winded this may get. Never apologize. It's a bit of a long letter, but that's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Listening to these discussions uh, hit me the uh, hit me the perfect time because I'm a special education teacher at a charter school that covers grades six to twelve, and there are preliminary courses uh, that I teach that uh, as an elective film course next year for eligible high schoolers. I pitched the class to my administration as being a worthwhile avenue to get students thinking about how movies can be just as reflective of society as the novels they read in their English class, and that the pervasiveness of film and television in the culture arguably makes understanding movies more important because the quote average person lightly engages with those media more than reading books. Arguable. I mean, it's, uh, it's certainly art people deal with all the time, and if they're not taught in schools how to engage with it on a critical level, they might yeah. never pick up those skills. So, yeah, there, there's an argument to be made there, yeah. yeah. Uh, please note, I've helped co-teach such literature as Hamlet and 1984 this year, and I'm not saying that reading is less important, only that I'm trying to meet students where they are. Yeah. Uh, I bring this up because while I I was initially excited to listen to all of the film syllabus discussions for potential ideas, I quickly realized that there is a huge difference between film history classes at film school, where people have already discovered that they have a deep love for movies, and my situation of high schoolers who may sign up because they genuinely like movies, and others who probably sign up because they think it'll be a blow-off easy A. (laughs) Plus, being at high school means I'll have some ratings restrictions to contend with compared to university, which can more freely show things that are rated R for sexuality and violence. Mm. My initial thoughts is that this class would introduce some baseline concepts as how to study movies, your mise-en-scene's 180-degree rule, diegetic versus non-diegetic sounds, etc., and broaden their horizons in terms of the classics. There will be black and white and silent movies, as well as different genres and tropes. If I can convince at least one male student to buck stupid gendered norms and enjoy a musical or romantic comedy, I'll consider this a job well done. Yay! As much joy as I might, I might get from teaching something like Persona, I would want... I, want to make sure to pick something uh, I can keep mildly rowdy teenagers engaged with while not skewing too modern and too familiar yeah. that I'm not challenging them either. Yeah. My ideal goal would be movies that uh, we can watch and discuss and draw connections with society today. For example, something as clear-cut as They Hate You Give uh, to Black Lives Matter mm. or something a bit more metaphorical like Jaws and covid uh, to make well, that's a gr- gr- it, great great uh, syllabus. I, I, I went to a way. drive-through screening of Jaws in the middle of the pandemic. It was when, like we only went to a drive-through screening twice the whole time, mm-hmm. and one of them was Jaws, and it was really on the nose. <laughs> the whole the whole thing about we're not in danger like, anymore. Go to the yeah, beach. Like, yeah, listen, yeah. it's more important that we preserve the economy than we preserve the lives of the people who live here. That would no. never happen. Yeah, boy, god damn, is that movie still relevant? I've heard some people say we can't use the phrase "avoid it like the plague" anymore because people don't do that. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, anyway, anyway, to make a long question point. short, yeah. too late. Uh, what are some movies you might recommend for a semester-long high school intro to film class that's less focused on Hollywood history or the evolution of the medium, and more focused on introducing teenagers to the idea that film is something worth looking at as critically as literature? Yeah, bearing in mind limitations such as rating, probably nothing R-rated, and that gold. Goldilocks sweet spot for challenging them to broaden their 
horizons past the MCU, but ve- not veering so dense and experimental that they feel too in- intimidated to engage. Not yeah. necessarily looking for a full syllabus uh, that um, you'll immediately say you hate. <laughs> Just a few suggestions or a couple of points in a certain direction would be greatly appreciated. Thank yep. you so much for taking time to read and share your thoughts, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, that's a great question, and uh, I'm, I applaud you for pursuing that as a curriculum. I remember... Uh, when I was in school, every once in a while, they would spike the English curriculum with some <coughs> directly related movie. Mm. If we're doing Shakespeare, we might watch a Shakespeare adaptation, for example, or we'll watch the movie To Kill a Mockingbird or something as an illustration of the book that we're reading. Um, but yeah, we teach English literature uh, to students in order to, again, teach them how to engage with art and teach them how to engage with the written word, teach them how to uh, practice critical analysis and not take everything they're reading for granted. Um, But yeah, arguably the most prominent contemporary medium is film or some derivation thereof. TV, Mm. commercials, the news is a version of film as well. Um, And we don't always teach the skills necessary to disseminate that. Yeah. So this is great. Uh, The one thing you left out of your email that I would be really curious is if it's a factor... Uh, because I know like this isn't like college. I don't know how much of this you're forced to watch in class versus at home viewing yeah, yeah. Uh, would be length. Yeah, like is there I a would, limitation to how long they can be? Like how long you have access to in the classroom? I would happily recommend something like Seven Samurai. Yeah, uh, which is that thing just moves. It is a yeah. corker of a film, it's a, and, and it's, it's an action spectacular, yeah, and, and it's over three hours in length though, and that takes up several class periods. Yeah, so I, I probably not what I would lean to. Yeah. Um, if you wanted to, for example, teach a film about that that sort of evokes the superhero trends that we have now, mm-hmm. uh, but also put them in like a larger historical context, and so showing people how action movies have been dealing with larger than life narratives, but also engaging with the world in a political way, The Adventures of Robin Hood, starring Errol Flynn. There you go. It's still a movie that moves real, real fast. It's bright and colorful. It's fun. It's heroic. Um, it holds up real great. Yeah, that's definitely and and it's worth studying. It's actually like a lot of fun cinematic techniques in there. Some of which were being done like for the first time. The score is very ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, the action's very ahead of its time in a lot of ways. So that might be a fun one to start with. Yeah. Um, what else you got? Um, golly, uh, if if you're just trying to teach like basic film literacy, mm-hmm. uh, actually, you said that's not what you're not trying to go for. You don't want like the history of the media. No, no, you're trying, you're trying to, make, to you're engage tra- people f- yeah. like initially for the first time. You're trying to connect mm-hmm. something today to the past so that they'll form a connection yeah. to it, no, um, um, and also uh, teach people like basic cinematic language, mm-hmm. not necessarily the history of it. This is what I fall back on all the time, and mm-hmm. I do this because this is actually uh, something that worked for me. Uh, in the seventh grade, a bunch mm. of 12, uh, 12 year olds were learning about the criminal justice system. Oh, there you go. And they put on Sidney Lumet's 12 Angry Men, mm. uh, which is a film from the 1950s and has a lot of you know, really great character actors. Uh, Henry Fonda is ostensibly the star, but there's you know, also a lot of uh, recognizable faces if you know older uh, you know, cinema from the 1950s. And it's just a conversation. It's just a bunch of sweaty white guys in a hot room <laughs> talking about a murder case that we don't see. Yeah. Just in the juror's room. It's you know very, very theatrical. Uh, Sidney Lumet directs the heck out of that thing. Yeah. Is able to just come up with all these really interesting dynamic angles. The way people are framed within shots uh, is like really kind of speaks to the power dynamic between them. It's about prejudice. It's about the criminal justice system. It's about the way we think about crime. And it is really, really engaging. It's incredibly exciting watch. Yeah. And uh, as a bunch of 12-year-olds, we were completely engaged with 12 Younger Men. That is a great way to sort of push younger people into older cinema who might not have an interest into it. Yeah. Uh, There are, of course, any number of films that could do this. I would assume could do this, but maybe not. Yeah, I mean, you have to know your audience as well. I, I would sit kids down in front of something like 2001 A Space Odyssey which I think is one of the greatest films ever made and I think is really engaging. But mm. I've also heard a lot of people my age mm. talk about how they were forced to watch it in school and they hated it because it was you, really slow moving. Well, you have, you have to set people up for uh, what they're going to see. And yeah. some movies 
are easier to absorb in an environment where maybe you're not surrounded by your friends in the middle of the day and it's not lunch hour yet, that mm. kind of thing. That might not be the best environment for it. Um, I think one of the tricks to introduce uh, young people to, especially as part of a curriculum where there's always going to be people who are excited about it, but there's also going to be people who are just like, oh, I just don't want it today. Um, you got you to gotta grab them. You got to get something that'll really engage. And uh, I'm not sure... Where the line is, I know different schools and different uh, uh, curriculums and different communities uh, have different standards for this kind of thing. Uh, but I think an Alfred Hitchcock murder mystery would probably hit a good sweet spot of thrilling but not like scary. Mm. And the film that I would recommend for that, especially if you're teaching cinematic literacy, is Rear Window. Oh, okay. Yeah. Rear Window, It's it's got a great hook. It's got a great premise. Everyone can wrap their heads around it. Okay, so it's someone who's trying to solve a murder, but they can't leave their apartment, and they're just looking through the window. Uh, that's a great setup. Uh, it's told... It's, it's, it's really fast-paced, considering that it's not like full of action sequences. Um, and it's also a movie where every single detail in the movie pays off if you pay attention mm. to it. Like, every single person that jimmy stewart is staring at through his window every single one of his neighbors mm -hmm. is going through a situation that relates to his personal experience in some way whether they're mm -hmm. a stymied artist or uh someone who's in possibly a failing marriage which is what he's worried about because he's worried about commitment to his amazingly perfect girlfriend mm -hmm. um a lot of great wonderful visual storytelling in it uh, that's a good one. I think Hitchcock mm -hmm. is often a really, really great place to start, but Hitchcock often pushed the boundaries of uh, what was acceptable in the 40s, for 30s, 40s, and 50s, mm -hmm. and the 60s, so you gotta pick your films wisely, but I think Rear Window is probably a pretty good right. place to start, but use your own judgment if it's appropriate. I, I think Rear Window is good when you're trying to look at sort of film and filmmaking techniques mm -hmm. and you know but i think if you're talking about engaging with something critical mm. i would go with something a little bit uh more like rope or psycho okay which has like a, a little bit psycho more psycho about... psycho you think so i think high right. school yeah i think you're gonna get some people complain actually i think it is rated r it, it, um, it might have been re-released rated r right. but regardless the shower sequence is really violent you're gonna mm. get that close-up of the skeletonized face it's too risky to right. probably yeah. lean towards psycho but i agree it'd be a great watch mm. But that's one where you probably couldn't safely show it in class because it's just on the edge yeah, of, maybe of so. inappropriate. I, Rope might I think be okay, a, though. I do agree. Uh, Rope and, and another way to engage younger people is uh, have a conversation with them about the films they already know. Yeah. Uh, go. You're, you're talking about you want to get them interested in something beyond the MCU. Well, talk to them about the films you know they've seen, those mm -hmm. Marvel movies. Yeah. And talk. Ask them why they like those films. Ask them to criticize those movies. Have a con start a conversation in a class <clears throat> period about what they find appealing about those films, and really delve into what's going on in those movies. Uh, you yeah. and I have had several conversations about how the Marvel movies are actually very military forward. They're very. Uh, uh, they, they glorify a certain kind of military violence. In fact, that's what the Avengers are. They're a freelance military force. Mm -hmm. And how healthy is that a message to be giving to a younger audience? Uh, to sort of ex explain to people that we're going to be safe so long as we have a military of gods looking over us. Yeah. And what kind of message is that sending? What kind of little details can you point to in these movies that are positive or mm -hmm. negative examples of what's being communicated to an audience? Filmmakers aren't necessarily going to know they're putting in that or they're going to be putting stuff in accidentally or purposefully mm -hmm. about... Uh, you know what, what they're actually saying when they're putting together what a lot of people perceive as light entertainment. Yeah. Uh, ask what some of their favorite movies are. Yeah. Uh, and 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 keep on talking about why they like these movies. And ex you know if, if you're familiar with these films as a teacher, engage in them in a conversation with what is going on in those movies, what is good and what is bad about those movies, yeah. and what is being said well, in those movies. And again, it's it's a if you want to teach mm. people about the earlier history of cinema, I know that's not your focus, but you want to make sure you expand their horizons and make sure they think about movies beyond what they're currently watching. You can kind of do what we're doing on episode zero, mm. which is you take something that they like and then say, okay, so you like this movie, well, here's a movie that was a huge influence on that that maybe you haven't heard of or maybe you didn't really think of because it's old and now you have an opportunity to see like where this thing you like 
actually came from. Yeah. And now you have a greater sense of like what movies were like in this earlier era. I'm trying to think of like a really, 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 really good example of that. Mm. Like, um, uh, you could talk about the universal horror movies, many of which are pretty acceptable for, for younger people, mm. uh, because they're not really brutally violent. And most of the, uh, untoward thematic elements are pretty subtle by today's standards. Uh, but like something like Frankenstein, you know, this is a sci-fi film. This is uh, uh, a film with action and monsters and visual effects. Yeah, and this yeah. is something that yielded a giant franchise and created an interconnected universe. Um, and you can talk about definitely the themes of Frankenstein are still completely relevant, and we're still talking about them today. Mm. And they're still influencing sci-fi, fantasy, drama. There's a lot to be done. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, we could go on about this for forever, uh, mm. but. Um, Hopefully that gives you a start. Yeah, uh, I, this, I think this is just off the top of our heads. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I would I would say this uh, if you want to teach them about silent uh, cinema, go for comedies. Uh, mm-hmm. They tend to be uh, the shorts. Even like we'll show them some Buster Keaton shorts. Make sure you watch them ahead of time. Make sure there's nothing like racist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, 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 you never yeah. know what you're going to run into. You, you might run into something sort of accidentally really sexist or racist mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, it was a shittier time in a lot of ways, but a lot of them hold up great. So just make sure you watch the stuff ahead of time. Make sure they're they're cool. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's a few great Laurel and Hardy shorts as well. Oh yeah, just really hilarious. There's plenty of stuff that you can watch. Um, and um, and they're, they're again, they're only a few minutes long. A lot of them, and you know, it's about the same uh, duration as a YouTube video or TikTok sometimes. Mm-hmm. So uh, definitely worth checking that out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, hopefully hopefully that helps a little bit. It's a topic I'm very passionate about. Um, Let's move on. What's that next letter? Here's a letter from Starship. Hello, Starship. Ooh, cool name. Um, Hello, gentlemen. I hope hope you're doing well. I was very interested in Whitney talking about Ghostbusters and his generation in the last letters episode and decided it was time to get something off of my chest. Ooh. I think Ghostbusters is just okay. (laughs) It's a perfectly fine movie. The weird cult that follows it around has always baffled me. When I first heard about an all-woman Ghostbuster movie, my thoughts were, oh, that might be fun. And then I moved on with my life. (laughs) Then, of course, the insane amount of backlash started against it before anyone had ever seen it or knew anything about it. For the record, that movie was also fine, but nothing special. Now I'm just annoyed that they're making yet another iteration of Ghostbusters because to me it seems like just an apology that for all the fanboys who are upset that they dared to put girls in their boy movie in 2016. It really hurt me as a woman to see grown men behaving this way over a movie. I probably wouldn't see the next Ghostbusters movie anyway because, again, I'm just not that big a fan of the franchise, but because of the whining and the chest beating over the 2016 film, I'm definitely not seeing it. Sorry for the rant. I'd be interested to know your thoughts on the upcoming Ghostbusters movie if you are looking forward to it. I promise I won't hold it against you. Thank you for the hours upon hours of entertainment that you guys provide. I love your work. All the best. Starship. Starship, thank you for writing in. Um, Ghostbusters uh, was a surprise success. Like, I don't think anyone expected it to be a huge, gigantic success when it came out in 1984. 84. It was 84. Um, and we've talked about it a lot. A lot of film critics have. Um because it, it just kind of hit this weird lightning in a bottle thing where we're going to take something really fantastic with visual effects that look really amazing for the time and still hold up pretty good. Mm. Um, and we're going to combine it with some of the most popular comedic actors of the era. And we're going to make it like really down to earth and make it kind of work a day. And it was just a good chemical mix. Mm. And it might be the sort of thing where a couple of generations later where instead of being like fresh and exciting and new it's just part of the pre-existing pop culture firmament it probably just doesn't live up to the hype sometimes i wouldn't maybe, be surprised if that's the case yeah. uh, i think it's quite a good movie i do i'm actually a big fan of ghostbusters same I even don't have dour feelings about Ghostbusters 2, even though it's just a kind of like a cheap retread. Yeah, yeah. There's stuff I like about it. It's a lot of the same comedic beats. Um, I think a lot of the goodwill that lingers about Ghostbusters has less to do with the first movie mm. and more to do with the television series The Real Ghostbusters. Maybe, maybe so. Which was Uh, surprisingly well-written for a really long time and had mm. pretty good animation for the era and kept the franchise alive Mm. Uh, and I think solidified the idea of the Ghostbusters as not just a couple of fun movies, but as this 
universe with a lot of different mythologies that were actually like capable of being explored and exploited in mm. future cinema and as a result it feels i think to some people this is just my theory but like it feels to some people as though the canon is solidified rather than we can do anything we want with it no. which is uh, probably not a great place to start so anyway what i find a little baffling about ghostbusters is that the 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 four central characters over the course of you know rewatching and and you know a generation of kids growing up with it and really really loving it have been mutated into aspirational figures. Yeah. When you go back to the 1984 film, those guys are are not aspirational. They're losers. They're, they're yeah. They're they're downbeat losers. Yeah. Peter yeah. Venkman is a liar and he's a yeah. bit of a cad. Yeah. They're uh, they're, they're <clears throat> naive. They're socially awkward. They just happened to ha- be able to provide a service mm. that literally no one else could. That's yeah. the only and reason they're successful. They're, they're not cool. And that's the, the central joke of Ghostbusters. Yeah. Uh, you know, they put on those, those jumpsuits and they strap up, strap on the pro- proton packs and it's not a gearing up to look cool kind of sequence there. It's really awkward and they're, they're, they're lumpy and they're misshapen. pest control guys. Yeah, they they're supposed a- to look like working Blue yeah. collar dudes. Like the pack on their back is just like if they had like bug spray yeah. and like their proton, their 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 proton pack uh, wands or whatever they call them. I forget. I used to know all this. Mm. Um, are basically just like they're, bug sprayers. Yeah, that that's it. They're like, like they're, they're not. That's not. I mean, it's kind of cool because the sound effects are awesome and they the make special cool, effects look really cool. Yeah, but, like yeah, that sells it, but they're mm. exterminators. It's like, like they're exterminators. And, and, you know, and, and they screw everything up. It's like, yeah. okay, whatever you do, don't look in the trap. Oh, shit, I looked in the trap, Ray. You know, that kind yeah. of stuff. They're screw-ups. And, yeah. and they're not supposed to be these aspirational figures. So this weird ultra-masculine, uh, and it seems to me inflated backlash over the Paul Feig film from 2016. I think yeah. a, a lot of that was sort of, became part of the publicity for the movie. Well, I mean, it, it was and, clearly uh, an intentional mm. choice. Uh-huh. To make an all-female Ghostbusters. And for whatever reason, instead of people going, neat, mm-hmm. they went, oh no. And I'm like, why? Well, well, Who gives a shit? It's a new Ghostbusters. Also, also there, the... It was a coincidence. It should have been a coincidence yeah. that yeah. they were all men in the first place. What are the odds? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, of course, it was a sexist time. They weren't even considering making women Ghostbusters, probably. But... Well, the, 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 screen, the, the screenwriters wanted to cast themselves, so yeah. yeah. I'm just saying, and they my, were men. My point is this. It's just as likely that they'd be all female as they would be to be all male. Mm-hmm. So who gives a fucking yeah. shit? I think, and I think, I think, I think some people were mad the, that it wasn't a sequel mm-hmm. because you were so invested. And I'm like, we reboot everything now. Who gives a mm-hmm. shit? I actually, like, I like that movie. I think it's messy. I think Paul Feig is better when he sticks to his script than when he lets his actors mm, riff yeah, forever. And I think that really hurts the film because it's, it's, it probably it's like, should be a lot tighter than it is. It's 50% riffing and the riffing isn't funny. No, I, I actually don't, don't like the 2016 film. It has nothing to do with nostalgia and it has yeah. nothing to do with sexism. I think yeah. it's just sort of a, a too loosely made to be... Uh, to hold together as a comedy. Something like that needs to be tightly scripted. I think it's loose to and, a fault, uh, but I think the character work saves uh, it. I think in particular, I think uh, 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 Holtzman, Kate, McK- Kate McKinnon, Kate McKinnon's character Kate, is a Kate very McKinnon distinct Les- creation. And, I love that. And character. Leslie Jones as well. I think they're, yeah. those two are really great. I think Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig are just adrift in that. They're movie. just, they're just doing their usual yeah, shtick for the most part. And, and, and it's, it's just, and it's not funny. And Paul Feig is best. just letting them shatter. No. I think the visual really effects are kind of novel. I like the kind of the mm. fun neon approach to the supernatural there. I think it looks kind of neat. Mm. Um, again, I think, I think Leslie Jones and uh, Kate McKinnon are interesting characters. We don't see enough of mm. in movies in general. Um, and so there's a lot I really, really like about it. And overall, I think the good outweighs the bad. But I think there are fair criticisms to lob at it just mm. as a film. But what is yeah, not fair to lob at it as it's about women. Like, fuck you. Like, well, what, and, what is that I, shit? That's nonsense. I, 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 this is one of those instances, though, where I never heard anybody complain, like make a sexist complaint. I only heard about people reacting to it. Oh, and that, and that you were sh- you were way uh, off the pulse because people, no, were, I'm, I'm, people I'm, were complaining I'm in, about that for forever. I'm I'm in my bubble, and yeah. uh, that was that was yeah. annoying to live through that era. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, is is the next one, and they're making another Ghostbusters yeah. film, and that's going to be an, a sequel to the previous two Ghostbusters mm. movie, and we'll ignore the existence of the Paul Feig yeah. film. Um, uh, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Did you see the trailers? Uh, no. Okay. I think it's called Ghostbusters Afterlife or some such thing. Something and, like that. Um, and it, and it, I know it stars um, like the kids or like young child relatives of the Ghostbusters character. I think it's like Egon's like 
like not nephew. Na- I don't think grandkids. I think like ne- nieces nephew, or nephews, nephews or something. Or something. Uh, yeah. Again, the trailer is trying to evoke things without revealing mm-hmm. too much. Paul Rudd's got a small role in it, apparently. I, th- um, I think we need to let the nostalgia trip die, and, yeah. and rebooting a lot of these properties is an uphill battle because. Like, uh, they're not. They tend not to explore new ideas, and that's frustrating to me as a as a yeah. film goer, somebody who wants to yeah, see new it's all, ideas. It's in all their about films. revisiting the past and mm. like that the the tone that they've tried to evoke in those trailers. And this isn't judging the movie. This is just judging the marketing that they decided to let out there. The tone is we're going to combine our nostalgia for Ghostbusters with our nostalgia for. Midwestern Americana, which has nothing to do with Ghostbusters, which is a weird choice. It's a, it's a New York movie. Yeah, and then the, the first trailer felt more like some kind of weird parallel Stranger Things kind of vibe. Doesn't it star one of the kids from Stranger Things? I'm not 100% sure, but I think so. I, I don't. I try not to focus too much on like the pre-advanced stuff, so I know some people know all about like this. I'll, I'll know it when I see it. Um, and... Um, Cool. They released this uh, one clip where there was like Paul Rudd in a supermarket and there was a bag of marshmallows and there was a bunch of little Stay Puffed Marshmallow Men. And mm. I'm like, no. Oh, I saw that bit where they, yeah. they're like roasting each other and that, that's yeah. mildly amusing. That it, roasting but that's, each other, but, but that's, that's, we've already that's saw that in like the Goosebumps movies. Like that's no. been that kind of, it's like it's the, the another, gnomes another, were doing the same thing. Another like, Gremlins knockoff. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't seem to be... It seems like it's nostalgic for something that wasn't Ghostbusters, and it's at no, the same time, mm. just not really offering me anything new. So the trailers have not been very interesting to me. But I've seen bad trailers turn into great movies before, and vice versa. Mm. So I try not to put too much stock in that. I will see it. Yeah, I will well, give it the benefit of the doubt until it shows me otherwise. Yeah, you know, I was like, okay, here's show me what you got. I can't wait to see your movie. And then at the end of the movie, I will know if it was good or not. Yeah. There's even going back to when I was a kid, there was rarely an instance where I saw an ad for a sequel to something I loved and I got excited about it. Mm. It's like, well, no, I, I have that already. Why are you, why are you giving, <laughs> I don't, I don't need it again. Well, often, I want, I want, I want you to, to surprise me again. No, it's uh, like, Oh look back to the future part three. It was like, Oh, well, that was at least on the old West. That's at least different. Well, it's, it's, but it, it's, it's still like, you're just going to travel in time again. Do something different. <laughs> well, we, we, like I, I, I loved um, Spider-Man mm. into the Spider-Verse. And yeah. they said, oh, and, and now they're going to do another one. It's like, no, no, we, we did it. We have Spider-Man. <laughs> we have that movie. Don't yeah. do it. Don't do it again. I, I, I don't like the idea that they're trying to win my goodwill by doing the same thing again. Well, I, I, we even when I was a kid, I was resentful of that. When we were growing up, Sequels were very often afterthoughts. People mm. only focused on making the first movie, and then after the first movie, and the first movie usually told the complete story. Mm. So when it came time to do a sequel to something like Romancing the Stone, there was nothing left in the tank. So Jewel of the Nile stank out loud. <laughs> yeah. uh, and a lot of the sequels that we got were pretty much rote retreads of the previous film because, hey, you liked it last time? We'll just do more of it. And mm. just even the good ones often felt kind of lazy. Um... But occasionally you would see a, a sequel that actually took the characters in a, a really new situation that made it kind of interesting or challenged them. Like the Road Warrior is very different from Mad Max. Like that was a really, really great sequel. Uh, Terminator 2 flipped the script on the original and that was kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. Aliens turned, you know, I, I know you're not a huge fan, but at least it's a swap, different... Swapped out genres. Yeah, yeah. basically we, we were a haunted house movie in space and now we're like a Vietnam movie in space. It's a different take. You gotta, you gotta at least respect that we did something different. Um, but um, I feel like nowadays people are a bit more aware of when you're doing something that has franchise potential... Mm. Uh, to at least leave something left to do later, like at the very least, hopefully you tell a complete story and it's satisfying. Mm. But like you know that like if this is successful, there are other stories to tell with these characters. Much like if you were telling like a comic book or a serialized mm. television series, there are downsides to that. But uh, you know it, it can be done, and I think in the last twenty years in particular, we've had more good sequels than we largely did in the many decades that preceded it. Mm. Um, at, least so, more, at least more carefully planned. Yeah, I think I think there are more surprisingly rock-solid sequels mm. in the last 10, 20 years than the average would have been like in the 80s and 90s. 
I think that's probably a fair thing to say. No. Um, but um, they're, eh. they're still grandfathering in your goodwill, however. Well, that's that's mm. the idea, isn't mm. it? So. I, I get it. It makes sense mm. from a financial perspective. And, and again, my point is this. Sometimes mm. there actually are more stories to tell that might be worth telling as opposed mm. to just what if they solved a different murder? Like yeah, uh, the okay. same characters did the same shtick again. Yeah, like mm. but like you actually have a new direction to go in. Like mm. I, I know you're not a huge fan, but for example, Captain America, the first Avenger, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, different films. They have a different mm. tone, different location. They've, they've they're they're different enough that one's existence is justified. All right, you know. So anyway, uh, but regarding Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. I I like all the movies we've had so far. I've liked all the shows that we've had so far. Uh, hopefully the next one will be good too. But I won't know until I see it. Liked all the shows, even the Larry Storch series. That that wasn't, that wasn't okay. Bad. I apologize. The live action, <laughs> the live action Ghostbusters stank out loud. However, the animated version of the Larry Storch series. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it's pretty clever. They changed everything. It's got like interdimensional yeah. monsters I, now. I actually quite enjoy the because uh, the reason why they had to call the cartoon version of the Ghostbusters movies the real Ghostbusters is because the word Ghostbusters was already been used for a TV series, and when Ghostbusters became a success, they like fast tracked their own animated series about ghost hunters called Ghostbusters, and that version of Ghostbusters has nothing to do with the movies, but is very fun. Mm. Just don't watch the live action version; it's terrible. Moving on. Um, here's a letter from Pulp Serial. Oh, hi, Pulp Serial. Pulp Serial. Uh, Pulp Serial uh, and it interacts with us on Twitter. Um, yeah. Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, I've been wanting to write to you a letter about something that really bothers me. At the time I'm writing this letter, we're two months away from the release of Disney's Jungle Cruise. I'm actually rather excited for the release of this movie because I'm a huge fan of adventure pulp films and the pulp style of writing in general. What bothers me, though, is that every time a new adventure pulp film is released, everyone just refers to said movie as it's like Indiana Jones or it's an Indiana Jones type movie. I understand that mainstream audiences aren't going to dig into the history of pulp writing, but it really bugs me when critics do it. I understand that they're trying to use shorthand and trying to convey what type of movie it is to the reader, but I feel like comparing every new adventure pulp uh, film directly to Indiana Jones is quite damaging, especially when a certain Rotten Tomatoes approved critic literally gave Dora and the Lost City of Gold a lower score because they simply wrote it off as a ripoff of Indiana Jones instead of acknowledging that it was just another entry in the genre. Yeah, that part's like, that movie's uh, awesome. That Dora the Explorer movie is really good. <laughs> Why does this matter? It would be wouldn't it be weird if film critics stopped using the term heist film and just compared every new heist film to a more recent uh, entry in the genre, like the town? Wouldn't it be even weirder <laughs> if people claimed that a new heist films were just a ripoff of the town yeah. and ignored decades of entries in that genre that came before it? That's how I feel when critics just say it's like Indiana Jones, especially when there is a rich history of literary characters that inspired him, like Alan Quartermain and Doc Savage, as well as movie serials such as The Perils of Nyoka, The Adventures of Captain Marvel, and Terry and the Pirates. These are actually really good at using the term pulp and acknowledge the history of it. What are your thoughts on this? Is this the responsibility of film critics to preserve the names of these genres? Thanks for taking times to read this letter. Love, Pulp Serial. That's a great question. Mm. I really like this. Mm. Um, Pulp Serial, by the way, is spelled C-E-R. Like Fruit Labs, yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a great question. Mm. I actually really like this Uh, question a lot. And it it happens sometimes that one movie or one franchise, one TV show, or one artistic entity, one pop culture entity, uh, just seems to typify a genre so much mm. that it becomes the standard the, by the which that standard, genre right. is so, frequently compared yeah. so, uh, for better and worse. Yeah, be- because uh, in Indiana Jones, uh, not only was a gigantic hit, but it's per- per- pervaded throughout yeah. uh, the conversation, throughout popular culture, that comparing things to Indiana Jones, I think, is fair. Uh, even mm-hmm. though it it falls in line with a tradition of older pulp narratives mm-hmm. like Alan Quartermain and and the like, and Steven Spielberg is very and George Lucas are both very open about that. Yeah, they they uh, call their shots. They know their influences. I think uh, like, it's it's yeah. it's com- it's become the new standard. And until something comes along that can supplant Indiana Jones 
as an example of that, mm. we're going to keep on going back to the earliest example of it. Now, well, it, and it's and, not, not the earliest example, but I think... Um, but I said, in terms of our conversation about it, it's right. going to be the new fulcrum on which we uh, converse about these movies. Yeah, because what happens is, Indiana Jones was part of, again, the pulp genre goes back well over 100 years right now. The novels and... Pulp, pulp adventure literature. Yeah, uh, stories of larger-than-life tales of daring do... Uh, travels to distant lands fighting monsters mm. and falling into death traps and a lot of it very fun some of it uh, steeped in colonialist attitudes that suck um, a and lot still... of it steeped in colonialist attitudes fair enough uh, and, uh, and unfortunately a lot of those uh, legacies have sort of seeped into the pulpy storytelling that we still have today even though people aren't necessarily always calling it out um but uh, the pulp genre had fallen so largely out of favor, at least in the mainstream, that by the time Indiana Jones came along, the genre was not considered, it was, I wouldn't say it was called dead per se, but it wasn't a successful genre. Hmm. Um, you know, we'd had Doc Savage, the movie in the 70s. It didn't make money, and I'm glad because it's terrible. Like, it's a bad movie. Um, same thing with Star Wars. When Star Wars came along, Star Wars didn't invent space operas. Star Wars was influenced by a lot of space shit. Mm. Uh, but it popularized it and made it mainstream again and was such a huge success that when people made space operas after Star Wars, they weren't saying, oh, I really want to get some of that Valerian money. <laughs> no, they're saying they want Star Wars money yeah. because that's what was the success. So when it comes to Indiana Jones... The people who are making movies that are comparable to Indiana Jones in some way in a post-Indiana Jones world, even if they too are influenced by stuff other than Indiana Jones, on some level, either the filmmakers or the studio or the marketing department, they know that to the audiences, the most successful, most iconic version of this is Indiana Jones. Just like slasher movies, there's a few more examples of that, but we're always comparing slasher movies to something like Friday the 13th, Halloween, or Nightmare on Elm Street. It's one of those three. Yeah, the, uh, but maybe are... Scream now, but like those are the, those mm. are the four. Uh, so yeah, the, the, the timeline of a genre keeps getting updated. Yeah. And uh, yeah, to, to bring up Valerian, you know, Valerian was a big influence on Star Wars. Yep. Uh, and they made a movie of Valerian, and it felt like a knockoff of Star Wars, didn't it? Yeah. A lot of people said, you know, it's too late. We we need the connection to Star Wars now to invest in something this complex, maybe. Yeah. Uh, whatever the reason, that film tanked really, really hard, uh, and it's because Star Wars kind of al already surpassed it. It sucked the air out of the yeah. room. Yeah. 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 So to compare something like Jungle Cruise to Indiana Jones is fair. I'd say Jungle Cruise needs to look to a little bit the more recent past. I think Jungle Cruise is trying to get Pirates of the Caribbean money. That's the thing. I saw the trailer for Jungle Cruise because I was curious <clears throat> because Jungle Cruise is, okay, it's not really a plot-centric Disney ride. So I was a little curious what they were going to do with it. And so I don't usually run out and see every trailer, but I saw the trailer for this and I'm watching it and The Rock is doing adventure stuff on a boat. It looks a little bit like the African Queen cool and now there's supernatural monster shit and i'm like not everything needs to have supernatural no, monster but, shit because it's clearly they're going they, after pirates of the caribbean and the mummy and yeah. if i were to venture a guess i would say probably their lodestone was less indiana jones and probably a little bit more stephen summers the mummy which combined uh, yeah. the, the, the that see, indiana jones always had fantasy elements but mm. the mummy made the fantasy elements really in the forefront the entire time like the mm. entire time there's monsters rather than just at the end right um and so i feel like they're probably going after the mummy a little bit harder than indiana jones because that yeah, was a I've, successful franchise too i haven't seen the preview but i can i can recognize what the company is doing yeah. and uh and it's pirates of the caribbean oh yeah definitely uh pirates of the caribbean was an unexpected hit uh, yeah they, they made a movie they, I they think, did not think it was gonna be i remember I think, uh, the, the build-up everyone was yeah. was like hedging their bets saying this is yeah. going to be a massive bomb mission to mars predates uh, parts of the caribbean yep. i think that was the first like proper feature tower of terror oh that's right tower it was of a tv terror. movie there but was that was TV based on a disney attraction yeah. based on a disney attraction uh the, yeah they were st sort of still sort of nascent that disney was trying let's make a movie of one of our attractions yeah we can get some crossbreeding there and um 
Yeah, Pirates of the Caribbean, Cold and the Curse of Black Pearl, which is essentially two movies mashed into one. Yeah. Uh, a, a fun, a fun movie. Uh, the effects are bad, and and the story is it's way too long. It's so, it's like, so bloated. They need to cut like all those 50 minutes so out of that movie. But, uh, all those movies should be 90 minutes long. They well, they, need... But they, they took all the wrong lessons. Their idea was, yeah. we're going to take a classic pulp genre, in this case, Pirates, and we're going to uh, do it up as big as we can. And which means a way too complicated story, way too many characters, way too many plot elements. But because it was fun enough, people decided this is this is fun enough. We'll go see it a couple of times. It became this huge hit. So they decided to make sequel after sequel where they just got longer and more protracted. Yeah. And ever since then, they've been trying to recreate that magic with other classic pulp characters or genres. I feel that uh, Tomorrowland, Mm -hmm. The Lone Ranger, and John Carter are all attempts to do the same thing. Oh, definitely. And Jungle Cruise is another one of those. Those are all chasing Pirates of the Caribbean, even though, though again... They're not not based on uh, attractions. But they're uh, all based on sort of that pulp mentality that we're talking about. The other problem, I think, when you talk about pulp as a genre... And uh, I love pulp movies, by the way. Uh, I mean, Mm. not, you know, laterally, but I love the genre in general. But pulp is a kind of a generic umbrella. It's, it's a catch-all term. It's a catch-all yeah. term because it applies to a lot of stuff. I think uh, it's easier to focus on genres that have a bit more clearly solidified rules because if you don't, people start saying, well, what is horror really? And I'm mm-hmm. like, stop it. But like, let's look at what falls under the pulp umbrella. You've got uh, uh, Action Archaeologist. Mm-hmm. You've got a Wild West bandit. You've that's not Blood Ranger, but the Wild West masked hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Flash Gordon. Those are three very different things. They've got mm-hmm. a similar tone, but I feel like a genre is a little bit more than a tone. Mm-hmm. And so that might also explain why, if we're trying to narrow down the vibe a little bit more specifically. Mm-hmm. Pulp might not be the end of that conversation, which I'm going to say it's a pulpy Lone Ranger kind of thing or a yeah. pulpy Flash Gordon kind of thing or a pulpy Indiana Jones kind of thing. And then you've narrowed it down a smidgen yeah, more. And and when we compare things to Indiana Jones, it's not just that it is of a pulp genre. Uh, com- comparisons to Indiana Jones are typically very specific things. They're yeah. about ancient lost cities in the jungle mm-hmm. left, left behind by ancient civilizations that uh, modern American characters are now infiltrating yeah. or at least to discover Western, the secrets of. Tomb yeah. Raider is British, but yeah. like, it's clearly well, it's, an Indiana yeah, Jones yeah. knockoff. Yeah. Yeah. Tomb Raider is, it was, it, it's totally fair to compare Tomb Raider to Indiana Jones because Tomb Raider is a shameless Indiana Jones knockoff. Video games and movies. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, Dora and the Lost City of Gold takes a lot of, uh, mm. I, I just saw the previews for that one, but no, I can tell not. just from the previews that there's a lot of Indiana Jones iconography yeah. put it, in that movie. It, it's it's uh, way more kid-oriented, but mm. yeah, clearly they saw the Indiana Jones movies, and we yeah. can't pretend otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, to compare Jungle Cruise to Indiana Jones, I don't think it's doing a disservice to the, the longer traditions of pulp adventure. Uh, I haven't seen the movie, Maybe Jungle Cruise is trying to go for a much more old world approach to this material and is tapping into things that do indeed predate Indiana Jones very specifically. But marketing wants to find something safe to compare things yeah. to, and that's what they're going to go for. So, yeah, the, yeah. the marketing. So, it's okay if we're just talking about the marketing. Mm. Indiana Jones is definitely being evoked. Uh, the larger question you asked, though, beyond that, because we're just talking about sort of genre labels. Um, is uh, do film critics, and to be fair, a lot of film critics approach this very, very differently, but, um, like, approach their job very, mm. very differently, or they have different backgrounds, or they have different uh, elements of focus, and some of the film critics who focus ex- explicitly on things like, for example, Marvel movies, Star Wars, Disney, mm. um, are really skewing mainstream and not necessarily focusing too heavily on the history of cinema mm. as part of their uh, output. But I do personally believe, it's a matter of principle, that it is a critic's responsibility, every critic's responsibility, to have some understanding of the context and history of cinema and to always be curious and trying to find out more. Uh, And I believe that when you're talking about a story which clearly seems to fall into a tradition of storytelling of some kind, and again, all we're going off of is the trailer, but the trailer does seem to indicate Mm. the direction where we're going... Yes, I think we do have a responsibility to talk about 
the grander tradition beyond Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. So we might use Indiana Jones as a catch-all. We might use Indiana Jones to articulate the specific, not necessarily tradition that a movie is in, but the specific money that it's chasing uh, or the demographic that it's going for. Well, I'm, I'm, but uh, but sure. I, I don't care about that. Yeah, my, I'm sure, I, don't, I don't care about the, the demographic demographics yeah. of the money. My point it's, is this. Yeah. People who talk about like box office and shit, they're definitely going to be using Indiana Jones as a, as a reference mm. because that's the successful version of it in the modern era. Uh, but I believe it is every good responsibility to talk about the other stuff. Mm. And you should be talking about the other stuff. And you should be using, we talked about this in our curriculum uh, email earlier, you should be, whenever possible, using the contemporary to illuminate the past and vice versa. Because all art is part of a tradition. None of it exists in a vacuum. Uh, so I think that's some of those exciting things about art criticism of any kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, that part I agree with. I 100% agree with every critic should be when, whenever possible, which is most of the time, if you really think about mm -hmm. it, uh, talking about more than just the most obvious bullet points in film history and trying to raise yeah. awareness of and explore and illuminate the grander history yeah. and traditions of the various art forms that we fact, love. A, a fellow critic gave me some really wonderful advice mm -hmm. after seeing uh, a movie called Men, Women, and Children. Oh, yeah. It's a, a sort of an internet scare film. Yeah, uh, also by Jason Reitman, who's oh, doing yeah. the new Ghostbusters. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So a little, little synergy there. Um, uh, they walked out and they said, everybody's going to, uh, every critic is going to compare this to American Beauty. Yeah. Find a way not to do that. Yeah. In your review. So um, that's the obvious part. Yeah. What else is going on here? What else can you say? Agreed. So, uh, yeah, f film critics do have a responsibility to, to understand what the conversation is going to be and how to expand it as much as they can. Yeah. We have time for one more? One more. Uh, okay. Here's a letter from Lexa. Hello, Lexa. Hi, Lexa. Um, since you guys enjoyed uh, the last one of these, I figured I would go ahead and uh, go back and catch up on the two letter, uh, the two letter of the alphabet... Uh, episodes that I missed. I'll spread the two out, though, so this doesn't clog up your inbox. Anyway, here, uh, same frame as before, uh, going into any type of media, here are my favorite things that start with the letter B. Okay, this is great. Yeah, so uh, all, across all media, here are the best letter B things, according awesome. to Lexa. Uh, number 10, Bleach from 2018. Oh, uh, this yeah. is as much an achievement in construction as anything else. This movie managed to take the muddled and confusing opening 15 episodes of Bleach, the TV show, and condense it down to a followable and enjoyable story for a one hour and 45 minute movie. Uh, uh, I, I really haven't. It's an anime series. It's okay. very popular. It's not one that I'm super familiar with. So I really okay. can't speak to this one, but I know a lot of people yeah. love it. Uh, Blue Stolly by the band Blue Stolly from 2011. I have I don't no know this idea. This is an industrial metal album uh, that is such a great example of why I love the entire genre. Finding a way to get the harsh production and sometimes harsh vocals to balance out is something beautiful, all while taking satirical stabs at the then modern entertainment industry. Uh, cool. I, I don't know the band Blue Stolly. That's a glowing um, recommendation, though. It sounds exciting. Uh, number eight, Busted, 2018 to 2021. This is a weird one. Partially scripted Korean show is a mm. unique mix of murder mystery, physical challenges, and personally driven comedy. What? That's an amazing <laughs> combo, and I'm very curious. I have not encountered a single other show that feels like this one, and if nothing else, it is a unique experience. Number seven, The Breakfast Club, 1985. Okay. Uh, this is a classic at this point, and I think it works for the most part. Um, uh, yeah, I, I like The Breakfast Club a lot. I think it's of its, of its time, but that's not inherently bad. Um, mm. It's kind of a chamber piece, you know? It's a, it's a, a bunch it, of archetypes trapped in a room talking about their lives. I don't know if it's ever been adapted to the stage, but it should be. It really does feel like it should have been yeah. by now if it hasn't already. Not as a musical, just as a play. Yeah, just do, um, do the play. Parts of it have aged really badly, but for the most mm. part, the character work is really, really strong, and I think it's a very earnest film, and I yeah, like it a lot. Yeah. Uh, number six, Blade Runner 2049. Uh, I know Whitney doesn't really get this one. Um, I get it. I just don't like it. Uh, but man, do I love it and all the uh, all the areas that it's examining, specifically in how it ties into the original film, and in doing so challenges the reasons behind most of the conversation around the film. Yeah, I like Blade Runner 2049 a lot. There are a lot of legit criticisms about the movie. Hmm. They're all, I, I call them legit. They're okay. legit. It's a big, giant swing and I think it doesn't hit a home run, but I think mm. it hits like a triple. There's so much good stuff in this. Uh, there's amazing cinematography, fascinating ideas about the future of artificial intelligence and how it would evolve after the original Blade Runner. Um, there's a lot I really, really like about it. 
Um, I think the original film just comes together a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. But um, I, again, you, you got to appreciate the ambition. I think of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Got to Gotta appreciate some of the photography. It's such a good looking movie. <laughs> that, that's, I think if you hate that's, the that's movie, you like it. it looks amazing. That, that, that's some of the only stuff I like about the movie is the photography. Yeah. Right? The, that was the film the, that the finally, characters in the story are completely. Was that dull. the film that finally won Roger Deakins the Academy Award like for the first time? Oh, was it? I don't. I, I feel like it was because he he's been one of the greatest cinematographers of all time, like his whole career. And then Mm. he was constantly nominated, never won. And I know he won for Blade Runner forty nine. I'm trying to remember if he won for anything else, but he finally Mm. did for that. And it's like, yes, what an incredible looking movie. Agreed. Uh, Number five, Black Spot from twenty seventeen. It's a French series. It's cop drama in a small Mm. town that always has the edge of old folkloric strangeness to it. In that, the show creates a unique tone that I don't think could be replicated or set up uh, in any other medium than this. Black Spot. I don't I'm know. not familiar with it. Oh, by the way, uh, just a quick uh, uh, note. Uh, Blade Runner 2049 was the first film that won Roger Deakins an Oscar, but then he also won for 1917. Mm. Fair enough. Good looking movie. Also good photography. Yeah. Uh, number four, Bad Guys. This fantastic Korean crime drama featuring yeah. Ma, Ma Dong-seok from Train to Busan and the upcoming Marvel Eternals is honestly one of the best catching criminals with other criminals shows that I have ever encountered. Bad cool. Guys. Sounds awesome. Uh, number three, The Battle of Algiers. Hey! We just talked about this one. Uh, you guys talked about this movie not that long ago. I agree with the assessment that it is one of the best movies ever made. Also, for military nerds, this is a stunning presentation of fourth-generation warfare. Nice. Um, yeah, Battle of Algiers. Awesome. Is, uh, please see Battle of Algiers. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed that it took me so long to see it, but I'm so glad I finally did. What a great film to see for the first time. Please see The Battle yeah. of Algiers. It's amazing. Uh, number two, Bioshock. Uh, 2007. Ah, uh, this era-defining game holds up probably as one of the best examples of telling a story from a first-person perspective out there, as well as a prime example of how to tell stories with your environments. Mm-hmm. In the first half hour, uh, this is still probably one of the best openings of all video games. There's a, it's got a really incredible like storytelling in the opening, like really just beautifully immersive gorgeous even to this day like the, some graphics look better now but it's really yeah. just evocative and stylish and there's a twist in the game and it's similar to another twist that they had used in a previous game uh but there's a twist in bioshock which i think is mm. sublimely genius <laughs> like it actually is it's so clever in the way that it challenges how we accept how video games force us to deal with stories while also integrating it with a really clever plot yeah. line. It's it's really, really quite genius, actually. I like Bioshock a lot. Yeah. I, uh, I've never played Bioshock, yeah. and, uh, and and I never will. But uh, it's... Uh, it's not because, not because of hatred, just because he can't handle I the just, controls. Uh, I, yeah, I just... I, I'm, I'm, my old hands can't handle anything that was made beyond, yeah. like, 1995. Yeah. You give him but, an uh, old Mega Man, he will wreck it. He will <laughs> kill, he'll do be great. But you I, uh, give him anything yeah. involving 3D like interactivity, yeah, he just he he he's got I, a he's got a mental block. I, I played through Cuphead and I beat it, and that's yeah. that's a hard damn game. But, but it's uh, a two D game. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a different two D platform because yeah. that's that's the skills I grew up with. But yeah, yeah I, I can't deal with anything like Bioshock. Um, but I did read up on it. I, you you encouraged me to read up on it because mm. you called it. You were very high on the game. Mm-hmm. And, I think it's uh, very good storytelling. And so I, I do know what the twist is, and I know all about sort of the, the criticisms of Ayn Rand and how, mm-hmm. and yes, and how it sort of turns video gameplay into this weird sort of meta-narrative about the yeah. nature of the character you're playing. Um, yeah, like when people tell you to do things in a video game. like you what, just what, sort what, of do it because it's instructions. Yeah, but, yeah, but now, it turns out they actually incorporated that into the story. But, so but yeah, now, now it turns out that... Without, Th- this yeah. voice, this voice giving you instructions is actually malevolent, and you're doing something wicked, and then yeah. make that part of the story, and that's it's really mildly cool. clever. Yeah. Uh, and number one is Battlestar Galactica, the board game. <laughs> oh, that is a hot take! Holy crap! Now that is one of the boldest choices I've heard on a list. Number one, I uh, can't hear. I can't even think of how long. There's something to be said when a piece of media wow. not only codifies the entire genre that it's a part of, but wow. years later still manages to outshine every other example of the genre of the market. That is what the magic of this board game does, being the prime example of the hidden traitor style of game to this day, also being one of the most evocative board games I have ever encountered. Wow. Hope this is uh, you guys enjoyed this list as much as the last one. Sincerely, Lexa. Um, That's really really cool I, I, I I, i've never played like, that game but yeah. what a what a what a grand gesture <laughs> i think if you're if you're making a top 10 list and like sometimes you're just doing it like for posterity mm. you know you really just want to make sure like for the record these are the great mm. so-and-sos 
But whenever possible, you should be trying, I think, to make a statement. You should mm. be telling people about who you are, what you care about, what you value. And, and really really and, draw the eye to something yeah. you think is actually important. I think there's an art to making a good top ten list. I really do. Mm. I think you, you need to include enough ringers, stuff that people know and accept are great, uh, to earn their trust. Mm. So like, oh, we're making a, a list of the best slasher movies of all time. Well, I hope Halloween is in there. Yeah, Halloween is in there. Okay, well, I, I hope uh, Friday the 13th Part 2 is in there. Friday the 13th Part 2 is in there. You know what else is in there? The Initiation. Like, oh, shit, with Daphne Zuniga? Yeah, with Daphne Zuniga. Well, you like those other movies I like, so I better try The Initiation. Yeah. Like, yeah. that's how you ease people into unusual choices. Um, and then once you've got them, then you can do something really wild. <laughs> then you can like, yeah, oh no, I'm going to stand by it. Friday the 13th, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child is the best one. And everyone's like, whoa. <laughs> that I, haven't I haven't revisited it in a while. Maybe it is that good. Yeah. Like, It's it's not. There's no, no story in no, that no, movie no. at all. <laughs> that, that, that one's terrible. Right. But like, my point is, is that if I saw someone who had proved... With either their previous work or had proved in the rest of their like top ten list that they were taking this really seriously and they are recommending films that have real value and everything. And then they said that the best slasher movie ever made was mm. Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. No. I would very closely read their explanation. I would read. I would read. I would, like, would rewatch the movie. I yeah, would be I would, like, would, okay, yeah. well, you've you've got my attention. Mm. What's your argument? And if I read that argument, and I would go, I need to rewatch this film from a new angle, mm. and maybe I will discover something I've never seen before, yes. and maybe it will change the way I view slasher movies as a whole. Wouldn't that be exciting? So when you take a big swing like this in a top ten list, and you've proven that you have good taste, awesome. That's how you do it. I love that shit. I'm going to look up the Kyer du Cinema top 10 lists because they mm. always like threw you for a loop. Oh, yeah. When you look up, uh, so the Kyer uh, uh, du Cinema is, uh, we've talked about it before multiple times, but mm. uh, it's uh, a French criticism publication and um, they're especially noteworthy for two things. One, having like absurdly high standards. Yeah. Like they're, they're they look down on movies that other people are praising as like trash. Um, but they've they've earned infinite and historical cred for uh, in the 1950s, having a lot of really challenging uh, film criticism that did things like define the film noir as a genre uh, and uh, celebrate Alfred Hitchcock as a genuine artist as opposed to a mainstream popcorn filmmaker. Uh, and uh, also a lot of the critics who wrote for them in that era went on to become some of the best, most noteworthy, and most influential filmmakers of all time, people like Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, so their top ten lists are often very weird, yeah, especially yeah. from our standards. So, um, so what have you got? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go to 2011, because okay. I remember being really blindsided by one from this list. Okay. Uh, their number one film was We Have a Pope, which is an Italian film. That uh, the that. Strange Case of Angelica is a Portuguese movie, mm -hmm. uh, which Are you, we're going from like one down to one, 10. one down to ten. Okay. Uh, then there was the Tree of Life. Okay, an, an American okay. film, but you know, yeah, very, very expansive, art, very artsy. Uh, yeah. uh, Jerzy Skolomowski, Jerzy Skolomowski's Essential Killing, a Polish film. Yep. Uh, Outside Satan, French film. Mm. Uh, Burning Hot Summer, another French film. I don't think that was released in, in the United States. I don't remember. Uh, Lars von Trier's Melancholia, which okay. was getting a lot of uh, acclaim at the time. Mm -hmm. A lot of top ten lists. Yeah. Uh, Melancholia. Another French film called House of Tolerance that I don't know. I heard of that one. Uh, Kelly Reichardt's Meek's Cut Off, nice. which is, and then uh, right at the bottom of the list, J.J. Abrams' Super Eight. What the fuck? <laughs> it's like, okay, I Super saw Super 8. eight. Yeah. <laughs> is the mainstream film mm. from 2011 that you decided... Was the one that was worthy of calling attention the, to. The, the one that was like, I vaguely remember Spielberg films, mm. and I'm going to vaguely recreate them vaguely. Yeah. Mm, I really want to read your reasoning. <laughs> yeah, I why really did, want to read your reasoning. Why did Kai Cinema the like the 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 rag with the the most yeah. stringent standards? Yeah, and the highest possible standards when it comes to judging film. Yeah, choose a film uh, which I see to be 
a, a fun, kind of forgettable Spielberg knockoff. It's perfectly watchable, yeah. but it's, there's nothing particularly remarkable about it. I guess it's well shot and the score is yeah. good. What like, was it about that film? Yeah, that like, got I'm, your I'm looking. I'm looking at like some of the other like sort of American mainstream films that came out in 2011, mm. and I'm looking at films that are. So much more interesting. Rango came out that year. Rango is a really interesting film. It's really bizarre. I love I, Rango. I have a lot of affection for Rango. Something like Source Code, which actually like looked at the 9-11 tragedy through the lens of sort of time travel sci-fi. Really interesting. That's that's a cool mm-hmm. flick. I would I wouldn't have been shocked if that had ended up on there. Um a, a movie I didn't like, but it is a filmmaker going bug nuts and maybe Kahie de Cinema would respect it I could almost see Sucker Punch ending up on there yeah just for for being bold and visually busy and interesting I would not I would not have been super shocked I really really wouldn't have I'm trying to see what else we have oh we have a Pope is on here Uh, let's see Thor probably wouldn't be on they wouldn't do that Bridesmaids maybe perhaps maybe maybe I'm just I'm just looking at the the mainstream mainstream stuff and saying like what was likely not there they would not God, can you imagine if they put the hangover part two <laughs> actually you know what maybe they would have yeah. honestly they're so damn weird i don't even know uh let's see <laughs> i want to go to the universe where they pick mr popper's penguins mm-hmm. oh, which has a lot of penguins in it it's and of penguins and of course there was the the big controversy when they released the best films of the decade oh yeah because the number one film of the best films of the decades was the twin peaks season yeah uh, a season of television, a season yep. of American television mm-hmm. was the Which best is, cinema of the year, and that caused a lot of yeah. conversations. What, what is cinema exactly? Is it yeah. like, because well, did it was, they call it a best? Did they call it a film or did they call it cinema? Because I think those are separate things. They called it the best film, and I think uh, because it was actually released theatrically in France, mm-hmm. then their perception of it was, was a little bit different. It was uh, released theatrically in France. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of American TV Weird. is released theatrically in France. I didn't know that. Okay, well, that mm. would explain a lot if that's the case. I, I really didn't know that that was uh, the thing. Mm. I remember um, I, I got into uh, LAFCA, uh, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. Oh, uh, I, I was trying for it. took a whole decade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a decade of trying I've, and failing I've, to get in I've, before I've, they let I've me in. I've applied um, a couple of times, usually very casually, because I know they yeah. never let me in. But, but, uh, but the first year I, I got yeah. in, last year, I was very honored, and um, we, we had our Critics Awards, and LAFCA is a somewhat respected institution. And um, we chose, and I was, very, I was very happy about it, and it was certainly something I supported, uh, as the best film of the year... Uh, was Small Axe, which mm. is actually a series of five feature films that happened to be released on streaming instead of theaters. Uh, some argued that it was more of a television series because it was in sort of an anthology format. But basically what it boiled down to is Steve McQueen made five brilliant movies in one year all around a theme under the same banner. So we mm. just honored them all. Yeah, It's not about saying that, like, this is serialized thing is movie like no no one had that conversation. It's just no. this is that amazing. And if we voted for Lovers Rock instead of Mangrove or Education, it feels weird. So we're just putting them all together because they're all incredible achievements. Why not? Why not? It's my number one. <laughs> yeah, it's really it. it, it, La- it fits. and I were on the same page yeah. that year. And if you want to talk about like how it's like you know more of cinema because it's a cinematic language than specifically a movie, which implies after all these years something that's sort of standalone. Fine, but also who gives a shit? It's really good. Hmm. Um, I again, I think Twin Peaks is more of a TV series than anything else because of its intense serialization. But also, who gives a shit? It's really good. I don't care anymore. We've blurred the lines. We've blurred the lines. Yeah, the, the lines are totally blurred. We're, like, we're oh, moving. Well, mov- uh, movies are, TV is serialized, ongoing narratives. And I'm like, great. So the MCU is television? No, that's movies. Fuck you. What is it anymore? I, I would, I readily, I mean, Small Axe is a series of films. I call it a film cycle. Same here. Uh, Twin Peaks. If you want to argue that it is one gigantic 18-hour feature film, Sure, sure. I'm, I'm willing to listen to that. Yeah. I, I, if that's the case, I would openly and enthusiastically make the argument that the MCU is a TV series. Sure. 
And you would be yeah, fair to I think it'd be fair to say so. They are gigantic TV episodes. They connect mm-hmm. in such a way, and they are planned in such a way. Yeah, they they more They're, resemble aesthetically TV yeah. than they do feature films. And even and even uh, uh, and from a production angle, where they're largely uh, reigned over by an executive producer. Yeah, rather than, rather than, than each a, individual director. Yeah, um, that very very much the case. Yeah, Ke- Kev- Kevin Feige is is the auteur, if you will. Uh, Arguably, s- yeah. studio as auteur. Is, is sort of the new uh, the new yeah. ethos with that. Sure. Yeah, yeah why not? Yeah. Anyway, we've rambled. Uh, yeah. Thank you, everybody, but, for yeah. listening to We've Got Mail. Uh, that was really good questions. It was a really good week. Thank well, you so much episode, for everybody. Man. Thank you for everybody for writing in. Uh, we're sorry we didn't get your email. Uh, we'll read more emails next week. Please send us more emails. More emails! Uh, that's what we'd like. And the, your email address is uh, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once mm-hmm. again, our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net uh that's what we would read on an upcoming episode of we've got mail if you want to send us uh, snail mail mm-hmm. covered in snails uh if you, you can want to, if you want to send us snails i'm not sure you're allowed to do that over the post but we do have a p.o box now and some mm-hmm. people actually asked to send us things in physical mail form uh, and that's available now. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Uh, just right into the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah, love to hear from you. And, uh, of course, you're welcome to follow us on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Very special shout-out to all of our patrons, without whom this show and none of our other shows would be able to exist. We just wouldn't be able to do it. So thank you to everybody who contributes at patreon.com slash Critically acclaimed network. If you want to sign up and you haven't yet, we would love to have you there. We have a lot of exclusive shows for you available. Shows about Batman, Star Trek, the Academy Awards, Disney. We do commentary tracks. Um, We get to vote for future episodes of a lot of our shows, like The Streaming Club and Cancel Mm -hmm. Too Soon. Um, Thank you so much, again, everybody who contributes. And if you can't afford to contribute, please subscribe. Leave us a review. All of these things are really, really, really helpful. They might not seem like it, but they are. Mm -hmm. Um... And uh, also soap. Etsy.com, Salt Cat Soap. Uh, the store is on hiatus for a couple of days this week because I am going on a very short vacation. But we're coming back with a vengeance on the first Saturday of June with a lot of new soaps. New soap designs for Pride Month. Uh, also a couple of uh, uh, new items as well, like uh, lotions and a uh, particular uh, kitchen bar. That I have uh, devised. It's a personal experiment of mine. I really love how it came out. I can't wait to share it with people. So that's over at Etsy.com. Look for Salt Cat Soap. All one word. Mm. We have a lot of great uh, stuff over there. So uh, thank you everybody once again. Sincerely yours. Bibs and Whitney. (laughs) 